Lord, thank you so much for this time for us to be together and the the common union that we have with the whole body of Christ, the universal body, not just those that are alive on the earth today, but those that have gone before us. This mystic union that we have in you with our brothers and sisters as we're reminded of just that great uh, walk of faith in Hebrews 11 that we have such a great cloud of witnesses about us and so let us lay aside every sin and every weight that entangles us looking to Jesus Christ the author and finisher of our faith we pray that you'd be with us as we consider these matters together we pray this in Christ's name amen all right the question that I sent out to you guys and by the way make sure that you are on our mailing list Um, raise your hand if you're not getting any emails from me okay a few of you Tori all right a couple Donna, okay. Make sure if you sign the back roster at the end of this class, make sure you put your name and your email address and maybe even a little note that says, I need to be added to the roster because a lot of this class, we're going to be sending out links. We're going to, I'll be sending stuff during the week for you to take a look at. One of the videos that I sent was from Sinclair Ferguson asking this question, what level of importance should church history have in my walk as a Christian? And so that's part of your homework this week, and that's what we're going to be addressing today. And really, this whole first part of the class is going to be why church history. And so watch the the video from Sinclair Ferguson. I also sent one from Tim Chalice last night. And there's going to be one other video for this week that we're going to have you watch by Dr. David Calhoun um, from Covenant Seminary, one of my personal favorites. Uh, I've listened to his lectures on church history many times. So this is the question we're dealing with. This is part of our equipping school track. You're in the theology and history track. If you see what we've done before, we've done systematic theology. We just came out of evangelism. We're now moving into two parts of church history. That'll take us to the end of the year. We're kind of thinking of this class as evangelism part two, because really a study of church history is a study of how the gospel spread uh, throughout the church era. But the other way that we're subtitling this is the rising of the sun. And I got this phrase from a sermon from Jonathan Edwards that he delivered in 1751. I think your notes say 1741. That's wrong. Uh, 1751 to the Housatonic Indians, the Mohawk Indians, uh, I think just the next year. And the title of the sermon is, is what is meant by believing in Christ. And he does this amazing short overview of world history in the first like three minutes as he's speaking almost certainly through a translator to the Housatonic and later Mohawk Indians. And here's part of that message. In fact, I'm going to, I'm going to read just a little bit before the quote that you have before you there. He says, um, by Christ, but Christ tells his disciples that all that believe and are baptized of whatever nation should be saved and that he that believeth not shall be damned. And so we have an account afterwards of how the disciples afterwards went all about the world preaching the gospel to all nations. And by degrees, a great many nations threw away their idols and turned to the Christian religion. And, um, and then he goes on and says, so... That in about 300 years after Christ, a great part of the world became Christians. There was the greatest change and alteration in the world that 
ever was. Christ was the light of the world. The preaching of the gospel was like the rising of the sun in the morning that shone away all darkness and filled the world with light. That's part of that's one answer to this question of why church history from Jonathan Edwards perspective. Church history shows the rising of the sun. It shows the spread of the gospel. The Great Commission goes out and has achieved the greatest transformation that we've ever seen in the history of the world. And so one of the questions we're going to be asking is, is Jonathan Edwards right? Is the spread of the gospel through the church like the rising of the sun? Or do we see darkness spreading throughout the world as Christians go out and impose their worldview upon innocent nations? Um, Those are two different viewpoints. In Acts chapter 8, we see uh, that there arose in that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the region of Judea and Samaria. Now, those who were scattered about, went about preaching the word. And so this is a big part of our history, church history, is that those that first came to know Christ, those that interacted with him and saw him raised from the dead, were persecuted and went out and began to spread this gospel. And so we want to suggest right out the gate that to be a Christian is to be a part of, of history, that Christianity is a religion of historical fact. Yes, we do believe in certain eternal truths. We believe in the existence of God. We believe in the attributes of God. We believe in the Trinity. But Christianity is focused on historical events, the incarnation of Christ, his death, his resurrection. And so therefore, uh, the Christian is personally involved with history, you and I are involved with history of these relatives. Now, I want to mention uh, something in our curriculum here from Carl Truman that we can have have we can fall on two sides of this wagon when it comes to history. We can have like a a, a love affair with history um, and and love it too much, or we can uh, relegate it of having no importance. And Carl Truman has this to say. He says um, there's an idolatry of the new and novel with disrespect for anything traditional. Or there can be a nostalgia for the past, which is little more than an idolatry of the old and the traditional. Both are disempowering. The first leaves the church as a free floating anarchic uh, entity which is doomed to reinvent itself anew every Sunday and prone to being subverted and taken over by any charismatic leader or group which cares to flex its muscle. So there's those, it's kind of like they're just reinventing the wheel every week. But then on the other side, there's those that look at church history and uh, it leaves the church bound to the past as its leaders care to write that past and, and thus are unable to engage critically with their own tradition. And so, so we can fall on either side. We can be in love with church history or we can ignore church history. And what we're going to try to attempt in this class is to say that there are positive effects of knowing um, our heritage 
And there are negative effects of not studying what some people call uh, the Third Testament. I, I don't necessarily like that term because it almost makes church history sound like part of the canon. But what they're trying to say when they say Third Testament is we have the Old Testament, New Testament, and then we have what the Spirit is doing in the church as promised in the Bible. And so what are the patterns that we see? Um, so some of the, Carl Truman goes on to say, actually in our curriculums, some of the things that we could consider that are effects of neglecting uh, the history of the church are one fuzzy ecclesiology. It's like, what should we really do in the church? What should the church be up to? We can divide over minute things, minutia. There can be a confusion about what our mission is. Like we see so often today, we can exalt cultural values get very sloppy in our uh, theology, uh, give ourselves over to heresy. Honestly, I think we're going to see in this course that a lot of the struggles that we're seeing in the church today are partially a result of the fact that Christians don't understand or have a connection to the church historical, uh, to the overarching body of Christ. Let's suggest a couple things um, that you know, as far as, you know, what is church history, why we should study it. Let me let me give you a little bit of a working definition, starting off with a, a cartoon that I, I love um, from years ago. It's a Peanuts cartoon where I believe it's Linus is writing a paper about church history. And as he's writing, he says, when you start talking about church history, you have to go way back to the beginning. My pastor was born in 1935. <clears throat> and then he begins to start right there. Now, when we go, when we start talking about church history, um, we go all the way back to Pentecost. Now, some of our brothers, they like to go back to Adam. We're not going to debate that right now. There is the history of the people of God that goes all the way back to Adam. When it starts to the church, Peter says, when he uses the word beginning, he goes back to Pentecost. And so we go back to Pentecost where the Holy Spirit falls on the church. Jesus says, future tense, I will build my church. Ecclesia. And so we have the church that begins at Pentecost and then spreads out from there. So church history is the study and reflection and application of what the Holy Spirit is doing through the bride of Christ, who are not yet perfected, by the way. Uh, church history, I think one of the ways we can think of it, it's a reflection of Ephesians 4 on today you know Ephesians 4 says that Christ has given to the church apostles prophets pastors teachers for the equipping of the saints until they all come to perfection and we know that the body of Christ hasn't been perfected yet as a complete unit and so we're still in that process but the Lord has given apostles prophets pastors and teachers and I want to suggest to you that the gifting <clears throat> that Christ has given to the church of apostles the apostles are past tense and dead but we still benefit from them Pastors and teachers, we have our own pastors and teachers right here at Cornerstone that we benefit from primarily, but we also have pastors and teachers throughout the church age that we should also benefit from. So I believe that the study of church history is partially a look back at the pastors and teachers that God Christ has given to the church throughout its history, not just your pastors and teachers in your local church, as important as they are. It's also looking at the pastors and teachers that the Lord has given to the whole church in the history of the church. And so that's, you know, sometimes we'll say, oh, I just, it's just me and the Bible. I just need my Bible. Well, your Bible tells you that you need pastors and teachers, and some of them are living, and some of them are dead, right? 
I was in a car one time with Pastor Milton when somebody was saying, oh, I love the, this book called The Gospel Primer written by this old dead Puritan. And uh, then Donna said, oh, he's right here. <clears throat> and so Milton has been thought of as being dead and alive. So you can, uh, we can study him in both respects. So a couple things here uh, as far as why to study church history. First of all, God commands us to be students of the past. We see in the Old Testament that God's people were commanded to remember their past. That's why they were to take stones, 12 stones out of Jordan to set it up after they crossed the Jordan. They were given all of these uh, festivals to remember things, the Passover. These were all things to remember their history as the people of God. When we get to the early church, we're given communion, right, to remember. We're going to be partaking of communion today. That's a reflection back on what's happened. Also, we're pointed back to our baptism repeatedly, like Romans 6, for instance. And, um, and so it's appropriate for us to reflect back upon what the Lord's done. As you guys see in this class, we're going to be setting up a paradigm for um, that as we see how God has chosen to operate in history as revealed in his word, we're going to look for those same kind of patterns in providence uh, post book of acts like so if we see god doing certain things and and keeping certain promises and behaving in certain ways that are dictated in the word of god we should expect to see some of those same patterns in our lifetime and in history does that make sense and so we're going to try to identify what are some of those those patterns a second reason why we should be interested in church history is because it's part of our family uh by the gospel, we have been adopted into a family that spans races, cultures, borders, and even time. When we look out into the book of Revelation, we see that when the body of Christ is complete, there's going to be people from every tribe, tongue, nation, um, all together worshiping Christ. And we get to, we can also look back and see what the Lord has been doing. And uh, I don't know if you guys have ever given into that clickbait where you start going on to Ancestry.com and then you're finding out all these people. Um, my mom has sh uh, shared with us. In fact, we did some Ancestry.com that, that would uh, take us back to my, I think it was my grandfather that was a preacher. And we went further back than that. I think I traced it back to England. And there was, uh, there's things that are, are beneficial to reflect upon. Uh, and some of you that are a little older and you have children, sometimes you kind of assume that your kids remember things that you told them when they were eight or nine and they don't. All of a sudden you're with your wife talking about something and your kids are looking at you like, I never knew that. Well, of course, I told you when you were five. Well, they don't remember. And so it's good to review, even for our children, our own personal testimony, how we came to know Christ. And, and it's good to go back and encouraging the Bible also tells us there's nothing new under the sun. Sometimes when we hit certain issues in the church today, there can be this feeling of being overwhelmed, like this is a brand new thing. We've never had to deal with this before. And when you go back and you begin to study church history, you realize, no, this same stuff is just getting recycled over and over again. Um, we'll talk about uh, Machen when we get to the 20th century. We'll talk about the rise of fundamentalism. And how that overlaps with some of the stuff that we've seen in our more recent history. Also, uh, we should be humbled and encouraged and equipped for evangelism. And really, that's the bottom line, what I hope for of this course. We talked about this last week, that as we look 
at church history, it'll humble us. We'll realize that we're not just in the bubble of our own little circumstances, but we'll actually be encouraged when we look out and see uh, brothers and sisters in Christ, how they've stood for Christ amidst some incredible persecution like we're seeing in China today, other places in the world, North Korea, uh, Iran, that there's people who have done this throughout church history and we can stand as well for Christ and, and that the gates of hell will not prevail. Let's talk uh, now a little bit about the political, uh, cultural, religious, some of the context uh, in which we began our study, particularly of the early church. Uh, if you read your Bibles, all of you know that Christianity kicks out of Judaism. We've got Old Testament saints who believe in, believe in the Lord. They're following Yahweh, many of them. Uh, we have true Israel. We have false Israel. We have the, uh, them being carried off into exile, brought back. We have the time of the Maccabean period and so on, some of the intertestamental stuff we don't have time to talk about. But basically, when we arrive in the early church, we have the first Christians are Jews. And these are people that worship in the Sabbath or in the temple and they keep the Sabbath. They, they really think of themselves as good Jews. And then in the book of Acts, they start being called followers of Jesus or followers of the way. And it's really not until the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD that we see this major turning point in the church where, you know, Christianity kind of. As, as people are coming to Christ, they're kind of underneath this protected little bubble that, that Judaism was a recognized religion in the Roman Empire. And as Christians started following Christ, at first they were kind of hidden under that little umbrella. Once you have the destruction of 70 AD of Jerusalem, now Christians are kind of out there. They're recognized, they're being recognized as their own unit. And they now begin to draw attention from the Roman Empire. And so that takes us to the second part of our context. And that is church history when it first gets going in the first couple centuries. It's, it's growing in, in the greatest empire that the world had seen to that point. The Roman Empire spreads um, really over an area that's about the size of the United States today. It's estimated that there's about 50 million people in the Roman Empire at this time. Uh, you, if you've done any study of history, we have the Pax Romana or Roman peace that there's enough peace in the empire and stability where people can do things rather than just having to run for their lives. Right. You know, when there's not a whole lot of stability, it doesn't really make good theologians. Right. When you're running for your life and you can't sit down and study your theology, you can't do your art. You can't do a whole lot of reading and writing and, and working on your personal instruments. You're just running to survive. Pax Romana allows for this cultural development. And with, uh, but also within the Roman Empire, you do have Jews that aren't always super happy. And so you have rebellions that are rising up here and there that does draw some attention. You do also have uh, the state religion that basically you have the Roman Empire. Basically, whenever they would take over an area, they would just inculcate those gods into the state religion. And as long as you continue to acknowledge the emperor, and we'll talk about emperor worship, how that develops here in a moment, uh, normally things were okay. 
as long as you weren't overly exclusive about your God, your gods could be included into the pantheon of the Roman gods. And another part of the cultural outlay of the early church is the Greek philosophy and, and actually some new religions as well. You guys, even if you just look at Acts 17, you'll see that you kind of have kind of a stoic philosophy. That would be kind of like those that would tend towards tragedy, right? And then you have the Epicureans, eat, live, tomorrow we die. That would tend towards comedy. That's an oversimplification. But you have tragedy and comedy when it comes to the some of the main Greek philosophies. And then you have... Uh, the rise of of what we call the mystery religions. These are kind of newer faiths. And one time I actually, I think the first time I taught this course, like about, I don't know, 12 years ago, I went into some too much detail about the mystery religions and their practices, and I offended a bunch of parents. And so we're not going to do that today. If you want to uh, talk, actually go study the mystery religions, I'll tell you where you can go, is the... uh, the Getty, what is that called, Getty? Not the museum, the Getty Villa. Yeah, go to the Getty Villa. Don't take your children and and look at some of the artwork there. It'll give you a real good idea of the religious practices. Um, I, my wife was wanting me to avert my eyes just about everywhere we went at the Getty Villa. But it, the thing I like about that place is they are putting out there, this is what Greco-Roman culture was really like. We've tended to get a cleaned up version of it uh, in the older museums. They normally would keep all the nasty stuff put away and just put out like stuff that we think of as art, but really as ancient pornography. And um, but now they're starting to put the the gross stuff out, which on one level is kind of disturbing. On another level, I'm glad that people are getting a tr- more true idea of what Christians really were having to deal with. Uh, as they were making their way around the Greco-Roman Empire and dealing with these mystery religions. So I, I'll try, I won't offend you. If you want to be offended, come up to me afterwards and I'll tell you some more of the gross details of uh, some of these religions. Um, okay, so let's talk about the expansion of Christianity. And, and so uh, one of the questions, you know, David... Uh, Calhoun, Dr. David Calhoun from Covenant Seminary. I just love this guy. Every time I listen to him, I just want, I feel like I want to like go through my radio and, or my MP3 player and give him a big hug. He's just a great professor. I think he's gone to be with the Lord now. I think he uh, died of cancer. Um, but he talks about how the <clears throat> his son was taking um, a history class from an unbeliever at a, a non-Christian college. And, and this particular professor asked this question. He said, how in the world, with all of the other religious and philosophical options, how on God's green earth did Christianity, was Christianity the one that won? Because when you get to the end of the three, you know, early 300s, you know, the fourth century, Christianity wins the day. And the secular professor just, he couldn't quite understand because Christianity you know, any any historian worth his weight and salt knows Christianity had nothing going for it. They didn't have armies. They didn't have money. Um, 
one of the early criticisms of the Christian church is that they were off preaching the gospel to women, children, and slaves, and the only people that really would believe this nonsense were ignorant people who didn't have any education. That was an over, that was that wasn't completely true. But it, Christians actually accepted the charge that yes, we do have slaves, we do have women, we do have mixed races together. Uh, under the same banner. And so it's like, how did Christianity survive? Not just survive, not just thrive, but win the day where it becomes the religion of the world um, by middle fourth century. And, and so part of the answer to that question, obviously we know it's because the gospel is true. Right? And the Holy Spirit, Jesus said, the gates of hell shall not prevail. And as, as brothers and sisters went out to proclaim Christ, uh, the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. So for, from our perspective, that answers it. Um, but historians also look at some of the providential things that the Lord had set up that made for, kind of paved the way for the spread of Christianity. Uh, one of those things is the fact that you have in the Roman Empire, uh, the Romans, we have a unified language. Basically, most people at least spoke a pigeon form of Greek. Are you familiar with pigeon languages? You can, there's, there's people who speak pigeon English all over the world. And um, if you go to the Philippines, one of the main, you know, English is, just, is spoken just about everywhere. But also Tagalog is one of those languages where you might have your own kind of a unique language in your village or your area, but you can speak enough Tagalog to get around. And, um, and that was the way the Greek language was because of Alexander the Great and he had spread his influence so many places, a lot of people spoke Greek. And so you could, you could get around pretty well. The Romans created an amazing road system that was unprecedented before. And so people could travel. They also brought about safety. The government actually protected people on the on the roads for the most part. So it was much more safe to travel at this time. As you imagine, Paul and the apostles in the early church going around to travel uh, to spread the gospel. And then finally, you have uh, persecution, which we're going to spend some extra time on is. God in his providence brings persecution on the church, which you would think would squash the church. But rather than it squashing the church, it just causes volcanic explosion of the gospel to go out uh, throughout the Roman Empire. And so there really is a setting of the stage <clears throat> by the Roman Empire. Uh, a, a question that that is raised, it was raised by this professor of Dr. Calhoun's son is, is this why did people become Christians? Obviously, from a sovereign standpoint, you know, that is, is God had, had elected people and the gospel goes out. It's the power of God and the salvation. People call upon Christ. And, and there's the, the sovereign divine side of things. But all of us have personal testimonies, right? I, I became a Christian because I was Jesus loved me before I loved him. But God used circumstances. He brought me and my sisters to come back to live with my dad. And we were not really good kids. And so he needed to find somebody who had more discipline to be our living babysitter. And he finds Judy Slade, who we call Mammer. And she came to work for my dad. And she was giving us Bible study every single day for about five years straight. 
She worked for my dad. And so we're hearing the gospel continuously. God used her to get us the gospel. And so what were some of the things that God was using in the early church? Well, it seems like one of the things that he was using besides just the preaching of the gospel was that Christian charity held great appeal. Um, Christians were going out and picking babies up off of the rocks and taking them as their own. You know, Romans would, they didn't believe that a baby was a lot really human until after the eighth day. And so exposure of babies was just common. If they didn't, especially if a girl was born and they didn't want a girl, they would just take the girl out and leave her on the rocks. Christians began to come and just pick up these babies and raise them. And in fact, there's early church quotes of emperors saying, the Christians are running around doing all these good deeds. Why aren't the Romans doing this kind of stuff? I'm paraphrasing, but this was a very well-known fact uh, of how Christians, Christians, it's interesting, you know, everybody's all freaked out about the coronavirus. There's this and that. Christians were the ones that many times would go into the areas where these plagues had broken out and they would go in and try to minister uh, to people who were sick and they would take the gospel to them. Uh, this was going on in in the early church and people began to, to notice that. Also, Christians valued people that were not valued in the Roman Empire. I just crack up when I read people like Dan Brown, this alleged historian who writes books like, uh, what is it called? The Da Vinci Code. Um, and he talks about how that the Greco-Roman period was so favorable towards women. It's like you cannot be an honest historian and know anything about the Greco-Roman period to think that the Greco-Roman period was honorable towards women. Uh, women were treated basically, unless you were an upper echelon, they were not even barely humans, not even recognized in the status of slaves. And so slaves, women, children uh, were just, they were used in like many places today in the world. They were just slaves. They were sex trafficked. They were um, body parts, right? And so when, when Christianity began to spread around, you have slaves, women, men, slaves and their owners in the same church worshiping God. And that, quite frankly, was weird to the Romans and the Greeks. How in the world? It's like, how can a slave and his master be sitting next to each other, worshiping their God in the same service? I forget the name of the bishop, but there's a, a bishop that church history believes that he was actually a slave when he was elected as the bishop of that uh, very prominent. I'm trying to remember which one it was Alexandria. I can't remember now. I'll have to look it back up. So, but it, it wasn't that he stopped being a slave and then became the pastor. He became the pastor of this prominent church while he was a slave in the Roman empire. It's like that kind of thing would be unheard of in other religions, but in Christianity, that type of stuff was happening. So Christians valued people individually. They gave value. It, it, there was just like the ethic we see in the New Testament, that there's, there's a value put on every person in the church. And that's why Paul is commanding, you know, slaves to submit to masters, but masters to treat their slaves properly, women and children and so on and so forth. Um, but here's one other idea that, Calhoun brings up and, and a number of people also point this out is that in 
the the context in which the church was growing was a very pluralistic society. A, a lot of what we're hearing today that that was the society in the Greco-Roman period. But there were so many options. Whatever God you added to your pantheon, it didn't bring a sense of safety or security. There was always this sense of maybe there. That's why they have that that thing to the unknown God, right? In Acts 17, maybe there's someone we're leaving out. And so the average Greek or Roman that's running around always had in the back of their head. We could be missing something. All of a sudden, Christianity rises up, begins to go ape evangelical. Right. And says, no, there's only one God. And so listen to this quote from Dr. Calhoun. He says this, quote, there were too many cults, too many mysteries, too many philosophies of life to choose from. You could pile one religious insurance on another and yet not feel safe. Christianity made a clean sweep. Christianity came into this vacuum that was left by pluralism and people looked and said, that's what I'm looking for. I'm looking for. It's like when Jesus started running around and saying, and people were saying, nobody ever spoke like this guy. What did they mean by that? Jesus wasn't speaking like, you know, I'm one savior and there's another savior and whatever savior you want. No, he's like, I am the way I'm the truth. Come to me. All you who are weary and heavy laden. I will give you rest. That's exclusive. And so let me ask, I don't want you to answer this out loud, but think about this question. What do you think of the claim by some that today Christianity must give up its exclusivity in order to survive? Historically, it's the opposite. Christianity won the day because it was exclusive, not because it gave up its exclusivity. And we have to remember that today in a society that keeps telling us you're too exclusive. You need to get with the program. You're going to be left behind. When history looks back upon you, you're going to be a bane. No, historically, that's not true. Um, Edward Gibbon says this. The various modes of worship which prevailed in the Roman world were all considered by the people as equally true by the philosophers as equally false, by the magistrates as equally useful, and thus toleration produced not only mutual indulgence, but even religious concord. And so there was this unity religiously and philosophically in the Roman Empire, and Christianity rises up and basically says, "Eh, no, it's Jesus only. And that's why the early church Christians, this is a T-shirt that I, I hope I can find one day or I need, I need to make it. Christians, one of the biggest accusations against Christians is that they were atheists. Christians were called atheists. You're like, what? Yeah, because they denied everybody else believed in all these different gods, including emperor worship. But Christianity came along and said, no, not that God, not that God, not that God, not that God. I mean, to thousands of gods. And so everybody started calling them atheists. And so the T-shirt I want, it says second century atheist. That's what I want. So I can walk around and people can be like, yeah, you're an atheist. What does that mean? I'm a second century atheist. I just believe they're all wrong except Jesus, right? Except the Trinity. Um, all right, so let's let's move into really kind of the last reason um, for the spread of Christianity, and that's um, persecution. Is 
is it's a well-known fact that we have a, a lot of persecution that goes on in the first th- three centuries. However, sometimes um, we can get the, the mis we can take a misstep and misunderstand and, and think that the first three centuries of the church was just nothing but constant persecution all the time. Reality, there's 10 major persecutions that we tend to study, but these were actually sporadic, most often localized. It's really not until Decius that we see empire-wide systematic persecution. Um, and while there are many inspiring stories of faithfulness, there were also those that apostatized. And one of, the, one of the lessons we learn is that while persecution in a lot of ways did spread the church, there are times where persecution caused a lot of problems. And so we have to make sure, just like in all of church history, when we study the persecutions, we don't begin to worship them as if, oh, that's the ultimate Christian life. If we could all just get persecuted, then the American church would wake up and we would all get pure again. Maybe not. Maybe things would get worse. Maybe we'd all apostatize. Um, or um, sometimes the Lord will work in a different way. He'll bring peace about and he'll bring ho- a, a new wave of holiness, a new wave of gospel preaching. There's lots of ways the Lord works. But let's talk here for a moment about reasons for persecution. Why did persecution start settling in on the early church. Well, one is disruption of business. We see that in Acts 19 is that churches were bad for business. You go off and all of a sudden everybody starts uh, rejecting Diana or Artemis. And uh, now they don't want to buy your idols anymore. By the way, you can see some wonderful idols of Diana in, uh, over there at uh, the uh, Getty or what's that called? The Getty uh, Villa and all of her little, uh, I'm always forgetting the names of those little demon guys. Um, I forget. We'll, we'll come back to that. Um, the drinking demons, they're always drunk. <laughs> uh, uh, charges of incest was another reason for persecution because brothers, uh, we would call each other brothers and sisters. And so people began to spread the rumor that churches were all uh, incestuous. Uh, there was the accusation that Christians are anti-family uh, because people would stand for Christ and actually would rather be killed than to deny Christ and stay with their family. You can see that in the story of Perpetua, her father's pleading with her to reject Christ, but she won't. And so she's killed. Um, Poverty is another reason for persecution is the Roman church or the Roman empire. They would blame Christians for poverty. They would say basically if there were things that were going wrong, they would blame it on the Christians. Kind of reminds me of my days at Cal State San Bernardino. Every class I took, Christians were to blame for everything. We were to blame for the environmental problems, the problems with women. We were to blame for um, uh, kind of anti-hater against homosexuals. Virtually every problem, it's like Christians were the ones to blame. They never blamed the Muslims, never blamed any Buddhists, never blamed anybody else. It was always the Christians. Yeah. Um, So then number five, atheism. Uh, We've talked about that. We're all atheists. Cannibalism. Christians were accused of being cannibals uh, because we partook of the body and blood of Christ. And that would get, you know, you know how it is with the press. The press takes something and then they spread some false rumor about it. I'm not a big press fan. I love the freedom of the press, but I've been on the personal end and people in this church have been on the personal end of libel. 
and um, the other word, um, slander. Um, talk to Aurelio Barreto sometime about some interviews that he did for 2020 and also how he was reported in the press enterprise and how they took words that he never even said and put it in the press enterprise. And he's asking us, should I sue? Um, I've seen the press do that over and over and over again, and nothing's new under the sun. They were doing it back then. They were accusing Christians of being incestuous. They're accusing Christians of being cannibals, and they're doing it today. I remember being at the prop Yes on Prop 8 campaign down in L.A. I was part of Yes on 8, which we won, right? But nobody knows that. And so we're down in Yes on 8. We've got thousands of people out there with yellow signs, right? And there's one wacko on the corner that's that's holding up hate signs about how all homosexuals, God hates them and they're all going to hell. What does the media do? They go over, they film that one person, they interview that one person. When I watched the news that night, they didn't show any of us, just families out there. They only showed that one person. And it, it, it would make me angry, but then I go back and I look at what happened in church history and I'm just like, that's just what the devil does, right? So we shouldn't be surprised when we're being misrepresented in the media, that's just what the devil does. And by the way, we need to remember that when we're reading reports, even about Christians in church history, that we don't immediately assume what the source is telling us about Christians. Because the devil's the accuser of the brethren. And I've noticed over the years that a lot of times what even comes into the curriculum is not true. Um, let me go on my hobby horse real quick. I got to do this. Okay, so I was an English major at Cal State San Bernardino and, um, and then ended up teaching language arts at the junior high level. I love studying English. My primary emphasis was in early American literature. One of my first classes, I was introduced to the Puritans at Cal State San Bernardino by Dr. Helen Brand, who's a Jewish teacher. He was the head of the department. Love this guy. This guy was not a believer, but when he got up and introduced me to Jonathan Edwards and Anne Bradstreet and all of these um, Puritans, he taught it as if he, he represented them well. I thought he was a Christian. I'm sitting in my seat like, am I in church? This is amazing. And I remember running up to him so excited after a lecture to talk to him about Jonathan Edwards. He was like, what are you so excited about? This guy, is, you know, he, he didn't really like Jonathan Edwards. But the thing I loved is he represented Jonathan Edwards well. Then I went and began to be a teacher at, language, at Grand Terrace uh, uh, Junior High School here in Grand Terrace and started opening up my textbooks when we got to early American history. The only thing in there about Jonathan Edwards was sinners in the hands of angry God, just a couple quotes from it. And basically they just said, oh, he's a, just an angry guy who hated people. I, I'm paraphrasing, but they didn't rep. This guy's one of the greatest minds America's ever produced. That was a, he, he lived at the same time of Benjamin Franklin. And back then a lot of people would put Edwards above, way above Benjamin Franklin in the influence that he had in America. And that's all my kids were going to learn about him. George Whitfield, all they said about George Whitfield is that he was part of some sort of money scandal. It's like, what? I had never even read anything about a money scandal. I had to go do some research to find out what in the world they were even talking about. And that's what my kids were going to be taught if I wasn't in the classroom about the early American Great Awakening, so on and so forth. And so, of course, I'm like, 
you know what, this, at least back then, this is a language arts court. I've got the right to bring in the, the source material. I'm going to tell these kids what this stuff is all about. Um, all that to say, we, one of the reasons why we need to study church history and go back and really reflect and think about source material is because the devil's the accuser of the brethren, and he loves talking about church history. <clears throat> the average person who starts to read up, let's just pick the Puritans, for instance. What do we know today about Puritanism? You ask the average person in the street, what do they know? Salem witch trials, Nathaniel Hawthorne, the letter A, the crucible. That's all they know about the Puritans. And yet, you know, there's actually some good historical um, kind of contextual things in which we could talk about the Salem witch trials. I'm not trying to baptize it, no pun intended, but the, the, the Salem witch trials, that, that kind of story has happened many times in many places, many cultures. And yet the average person, that's all they know about the Puritans. Are you kidding me? And as Christians, if we don't know anything about church history, then what do we think? We think, oh, yeah, all the Puritans, they were just so mean and nasty. Go pick up Anne Bradstreet sometime and read her poetry. Anybody ever read Anne Bradstreet? She's the first American woman poet. She's a Puritan. Has these loving, incredible poems that she wrote to her husband. She's a Puritan. Read her stuff. Most people have no idea who the first American poet was. It's Anne Bradstreet, a Puritan. And her poetry is beautiful. Uh, you'll read about it, you know, if you take, if you become a language arts major and emphasize in early American literature, and if you happen to have a good professor who will actually represent it well. Um, anyway, I'm on my hobby horse. That's why we need to study church history, folks. When we, uh, next week, we'll finish up the persecutions. There's 10 major persecutions. I'm going to send you a video to kind of talk about those a little bit. I went by my homework. But look, look at your sheet, and you'll see the homework. It's basically this. Uh, we want you to make sure that you sign up for the emails because a lot of this class is going to be links. <clears throat> and then uh, we want you to watch out for weekly vids and articles. Uh, I, in the past, when I've taught this class, we always go through a book. Um, this year, we're just not going to be able to do that. I can't have you guys read through Shelley's Church History and Plain Language. I'd love to. I'd love to have you guys read Sketches in Church History. I'd love to have you read Justo Gonzalez. If you just come up talking about Justo and Gonzalez, the hair will start coming up on the back of my neck. I love Justo. He's the man. He used to have a two-volume. Now they put it in one volume. It's called The Story of Christianity. You want to read the best church history volumes, in my opinion? It's Husto. Everybody say Husto. It's J-U-S-T-O. He's a killer writer. He's an awesome historian. And his reads are fun. A lot of times church history, people read it and they're like, oh, this is boring. You read Husto Gonzalez, you're like, this guy's fun. This guy's a good writer. Um, so if I was going to make you guys read something, I'd say go to Husto, but he's, it's big, right? Um, if you want to do something small, you can do sketches in church history, S.M. Hewton. Or I don't know if that's a, if you pronounce the D.H. as a F or a or a um, or you can just read the stuff I'm going to send you by way of links. Does this make sense? So you're going to watch Dr. David Calhoun this week. It's only about like five minutes. Why should we study church history? He's my homeboy too, David Calhoun. When you see him, you'll probably fall in love with him. He's a great guy. All right, let's pray. 
Lord, we thank you so much for the opportunity to go back into our family history, to go to Ancestry.com, so to speak, and to look at the heritage, Lord, that you have been building. Your Holy Spirit has been moving through the church for 2,000 years as this rising sun has come up. No doubt clouds at times have covered. No doubt there's been things that have happened both by those who aren't truly Christians, but also times that from people who are truly born again, just like David and had his issues. <clears throat> we have our issues and people in our in our family history have theirs. But you are the you are the one we're looking to. We pray that this would embolden us in our own gospel witness. Help us to understand the context of persecution. Uh, give us a good framework, Lord. Uh, for seeing how we fit into the family. We look for your return. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.